Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 276, recorded November 24th, 2010. DNS spoofability test. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and voice-activated sync featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. And don't forget to visit the 2012 Ford Focus Global Test Drive at twitfordfocus.com. And by GoToMeeting. Improve your conference calls and keep everyone on the same page when you share your screen with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash now. And by Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. Try one in your small business right now. Call 877 the number 4 A-S-T-A-R-O. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy, your security, uh, everything you need to know to keep yourself safe online. And this this is the guy who does it. <laughs> the guy to my left, Steve Gibson, the uh, the man behind GRC.com, Spinrite, uh, the Spinrite software, and uh, a whole bunch of really useful utilities, including that uh, DNS benchmark that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Hey, Steve, good to see you again. Hey, Leah, great to be with you again, as always. Happy Turkey Week. Yes. What are uh, you doing tomorrow? Tea Day. Uh, uh, I have a few bachelor friends who are actually, they're cooks and I'm not. And I'm not even going to supervise. I'm just going to stay <laughs> out of the way. show up. That's the best. And, we're, and none of us are going to uh, deal with our families tomorrow. We're just going to get together and make a nice meal. Sounds so. wonderful. That's very nice. Wonderful. Then we'll yeah. deal with families on Christmas. I'm so. leaving as soon as the shows are done today. We're going to drive down to Santa Cruz where my uh, father-in-law lives. And we're going to uh, stay at a nice little hotel down there. And we're, and we're taking them to the hotel's restaurant for Thanksgiving. So simple, be fun. Simple. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. No dishes to clean. The only <laughs> negative. No turkey or stuffing leftover. That's my That's favorite true. part. I love those That's turkey true. sandwiches. There will, be, there will be sandwiches for us. We have oh. a 14.28 pound <laughs> bird. <laughs> wow so uh now what is our topic uh, of the day today i think we have something kind of interesting to talk about oh i think everyone's going to find it interesting we talked two years ago actually about two and a half years ago about the um the problem that dan kaminsky brought up when he realized that a huge percentages of a huge percentage of the Internet's DNS services, the domain name servers, were vulnerable to, were much more vulnerable to spoofability than people recognized. Around, I guess it was like that summer, while this was being unveiled around the Black Hat conference, I realized that in a vein very much like Shields Up, which has been around, of course, forever, 
Um, and that tests and, your router for holes. Well, yeah, actually, it tests your connection. So it's GRC's server. It, 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 it's a free service that, of course, GRC.com makes available where, where you inherently need something on the outside to be probing back towards you. So it's a, it's a, I realized many years ago that it may, it, it was a, it was, it was a service that a web, a website or a web server could offer. Similarly, I realized that it would be possible to create a service that tested the, the, the spoofability in exactly the, 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 the way that Dan Kaminsky understood it and the way the industry came to realize, oh my goodness, 25% of the DNS servers on the net are currently very spoofable. I realized that similarly, a service could be created to check the DNS servers that people were currently using. And so in short, you could go to grc.com, click a button, and my servers would check your DNS servers to to see how spoofable they were and then produce a report on the fly, much as Shields Up does, which provides you a complete diagnostic analysis of the way your DNS servers are behaving relative to spoofability. So I set about creating such a facility back then. And... Um, I've had various things that came up in the, in the meantime, uh, the bit, the, the benchmark. And of course I got all entranced with PDP eight technology. Remember the old, the old computers <laughs> and, yeah. you know, built, yeah. built, they're right there behind you over your shoulder yeah. behind me and, <laughs> yeah. and so forth. So finally, and, and then of course the benchmark that we talked about two weeks ago fit into this because it was about DNS. And so essentially this is the other side of that. The benchmark is something you run on your computer to help you choose the right DNS servers. But after having done so, you want to make sure that the result of that choice is not spoofable. So then you use GRC's free DNS spoofability testing system to analyze the queries that those DNS servers you've chosen are emitting out on the internet. So today we're going to talk about how it does that. Sounds great. Sounds very cool. I'm I'm kind of excited. Um, and we have um, and we have some uh, interesting security news and updates as well. Updates and news and all that. Before we do that, let me mention quickly our friends at Citrix. They are so good about uh, remote access. You know, they're kind of the kings of remote access in the Windows world. Um, and perhaps you know they have a, a number of consumer products based on that very powerful remote access backbone. And none more useful to me day in, day out than GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting, uh, well, you've probably done some sort of online meeting stuff before. I mean, certainly we all do conference calls. Who can afford to fly everywhere these days for face-to-face meetings? So GoToMeeting is designed to save you money on travel and make conference calls effective. Because I think that's really the problem with conference calls is... Somebody call goes off track. People lose interest. They start playing Tetris. It's really not good. Uh, and nowadays, we've all got our little time wasters in our hands at all times. So, you know, you can kind of tell when you're on a conference call and it gets really quiet. You know everybody's doing something else. Harvesting cauliflower, playing solitaire, 
answering email. This is where GoToMeeting really can help. It keeps everyone on the same page during the conference call. It actually makes it engaging because it's visual. People like to see stuff when you're talking about it, to see the charts, the presentation. If, you, if you're pitching clients, boy, you know, you know those presentations make a big difference. It gives them the facts in a way they can understand. Problem with the conference call, they can't see it. With GoToMeeting, they can. You're on the phone. And by the way, GoToMeeting includes teleconferencing as well as voice over internet teleconferencing, so it's kind of built in. If you've never if you've never seen it on the iPad, it's so cool. Uh, if your if your client or customer has an iPad, they the free application they just join the meeting and uh, and they've got a mic, they've got speakers, they can just sit, I sit out in the backyard using the Wi-Fi, and it's great. Everyone's more focused, more interested, more engaged. You save time. You'll be more productive for sales presentations, for product demos, for training, for collaboration, any kind of conference call. GoToMeeting just brings it to life now here's the here's the here's the uh, pitch try it free that's actually a pretty good pitch try no cost to you at all just go to go to meeting.com slash now i like that go to meeting.com slash now and uh, you could try it absolutely free for 30 days and uh, you know maybe maybe now is not a perfect time if you're if you're taking the holidays off and you're taking thanksgiving off you might 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 wait wait till january on the other hand maybe You'd like to have some business meetings on the road or whatever, it, you put it on your laptop. I love GoToMeeting. You're going to love it too. GoToMeeting.com slash now. Try it free for 30 days. Then you tell me whether you like it. All right, Steve, I'm ready to start. We will start first with uh, what? Security updates, yes? Yeah, we've got some updates and sort of some news up or some update news. The only It's been a very quiet week. The only thing that happened was that Apple did update Safari. Right. Um, when I turned my Mac on this morning, it said, oh, we got a new Safari for, I think it was 37 megs. Um, so we're now at version 5.0.3 for both the Windows and the Mac platforms. They fixed a bunch of vulnerabilities. I saw the number 27 somewhere. So just, you know, they, they cleaned things up. There were some things that were fixed um, also in Chrome's browser, I guess due to the, the WebKit commonality, that is that, you know, they both use some of the same core libraries um, from WebKit. So, because um, I, I, re- I had read that four of the 27 flaws um, had been fixed in Chrome already. So, um, Apple was catching up and fixed 27 things. So, Safari is updated. Um, also, just yesterday... Um, the EFF introduced a new updated version. It's still at beta. I think it's 0.9.0 is their version of their HTTP, HTTPS Everywhere add-on for Firefox. That's something which it's a little tricky because it it involves some customization per site. As we've talked about before, it's not possible to simply force every website to use SSL connections, that is, HTTPS connections. However, many sites which don't explicitly do so can do so. So what the HTTPS Everywhere plugin for Firefox does, and this was specifically updated to deal with FireSheep, which we've talked about, which is, of course, the the non-HTTPS sniffing session hijacking add-on, which has now been around for 
a month and a half or so, which is <laughs> continues to be downloaded and people are, you know, getting up to no good with it. It was created, as we know, to highlight the vulnerability of people using insecure websites which maintain their logon state in an insecure fashion. So HTTPS Everywhere, which is a free download from the EFF, you can just put in HTTPS space everywhere and Google will take you right to it, now has been enhanced to support Google's search, Wikipedia, Twitter, Facebook, Bitly, GMX, WordPress.com blogs, the New York Times, the Washington Post, PayPal, the EFF's own site, Tor, IX Quick, and many others. That's that's most of the stuff Firesheep does, right? Yes, and so they they literally they went after those things that Firesheep was doing, and they specifically worked on those sites which were vulnerable. And so the idea is that it's you just can't force. You can't just stick an S on the end of all the HTTPs on a given site. But but individual sites can be customized with some scripting, which, which the HTTPS everywhere comes with and which individuals are also able to customize in order to sort of, you know, understand the URLs, maybe look at patterns which can be moved over to SSL in order to make it in order to increase the security. So it is something that I recommend without hesitation to any user of Firefox. Add this and this will just it'll just add security where possible, where where it's known to be possible on all of the sites that it supports, um, and that's a growing list. So this is something that is uh, is very nice. Yay. Thank you, EFF. Yes. Um, Adobe just took their PDF reader to version 10. So <laughs> Adobe... DEFCON 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bur- burying it deeply would be nice. Yes. Um, it's so they had been at version nine. We've talked about 10 several times saying that it was coming and that we expected it sometime before the end of November. So that did happen. What's significant about this is that they've added sandboxing. So Adobe reader now has sandboxing. Um, it won't solve all the problems. We will continue to have problems but it does raise the bar, and it will probably mean that in the future, the rate of problems hopefully is lower. Although I got a kick out of you uh, pr- prior to us starting to record, Leo, one of the problems that you had run into on on the system was that you were, you had found that something had installed McAfee's secure scan. Oh, yeah, and- I was really mad about that. I think it was Firefox, wasn't it? It may have been because they give you a little stuff, you know. And if you're not careful, and during the install, you don't check the uncheck the boxes. Yep. And I, I when I went to Adobe's site, which is just get.adobe.com/reader. Yep. Again, to move up to Adobe Reader 10, which they they use as Roman numeral X. It's get.adobe.com/reader. In the upper let on the upper right hand corner, checked by default. Oh is a sneaky little checkbox for McAfee Security Scan Plus to be included in the download. 
And I also noted that this thing includes Adobe Air. Well, I'm annoyed so, because I don't know who put... I didn't want that on my system. Not McAfee. I'm not worried about McAfee. Get Adobe off of my system. Yeah. We, we use... Uh, we use um, uh, oh, that the other one um, that I like much, much better anyway. Yeah. And, and Fox you know, I was, it. Uh, yes, Fox it. I was going to say that with, with this getting... Just bigger and bigger. And now they're them dragging Adobe Air along, which many users will not need. And they're just doing it because they want to, you know, establish that platform on more people's machines. And that will, of course, induce developers to do Air-based things. Um, it's really long past time to look at a different reader, I think. You Fo know, the, Fox is the, quite good, I think. Yeah, the PDF format is now universal enough that it's... It's not as if you're going to have big compatibility problems if you don't use the, you know, the original um, solution. And the, the other readers are just not going to be as large a target. We don't know that they have fewer security problems. We do know that fewer are being reported and fewer are being exploited because Adobe has the big bullseye painted on it. So, you know, I don't, I, it really looks to me like it makes sense to use something else. Um, in the news, Washington Post uh, covered a, a story that began with, oh, this was on Stuxnet, quote, a malicious computer attack that appears to target Iran's nuclear plants can be modified to wreak havoc on industrial control systems around the world and represents the most dire cyber threat known to industry, government, um, uh, uh, known, known, known to industry, comma, government officials and experts said Wednesday. So this was this was some testimony in front of Congress about Stuxnet and what it means to everybody else. Of course, we now know, as we talked about last week, that it really does appear that Stuxnet was designed deliberately to mess up the centrifuges being used to enrich uranium for Iran's, hopefully, only their commercial nuclear reactor projects and not for bomb making, for not, not for taking it to weaponizing level. Maybe we can um, do this to North Korea. Yeah. Um, and so what was, what the testimony basically did was serve to pretty much horrify uh, members of Congress about the concept that that Stuxnet could now be and would be reverse engineered, whereas it had been targeted specifically to Iran's process control systems for nuclear enrichment, nothing prevented it from being retargeted at other segments of the process control industry, power stations, nuclear reactors, all kinds of things that are using Siemens-based control systems. I mean, basically, the the template is all there now, and reverse engineering is possible, and it is entirely foreseeable that many of the tricks that Stuxnet pioneered, I mean, now that they've it's spread, and now that everybody who wants a copy has a copy, it's certainly possible to retarget it. So... It's looking like this may result in some legislation from the government beginning to enforce a a a, a wall, essentially. I mean, I would use the term firewall. The, the idea being 
the separation of of offline process control things from sort of online civilian use internet connected stuff the what everyone is recognizing is that it's this sort of lazy oh well you know it's like it's like you know the 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 computers in the in the um in ER in the operating room theater in hospitals being on the internet just because it's convenient. It's like, oh well, they get their updates and 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 so forth. Well, we've seen what happens when when you know operating theater hospital based computers get infected with malware. Is you know it can literally be life threatening. Well, this is the same sort of problem where Stuxnet is is crossing from the internet and machines that are on the internet into process control systems. The only way that's possible is if there's connectivity. So. So it's looking like the government is beginning to say, hey, you know, we need to do something about these critical infrastructure systems, which are on the net. They really need to be taken off the net. Yes, it's not going to be as convenient for people not to have all of the PCs that are running Windows hooked to the Internet. But if they're, you know, in charge of running nuclear reactors, we really don't want the rods pulled. Please. Please. (laughs) Please. Yes. And also in the news, I thought it was interesting, um, and a number of people wrote in, um, there was some news about China having, last April, briefly rerouted 15% of the Internet's traffic through through their country. That's weird. Um, Well, we'll we'll be covering this in detail, that is the technology for this, when we get into our forthcoming and, and still forthcoming um, basics of how the internet works series where we're going to start right back at first principles you know bits and bytes and work up to the you know the whole internet and how it functions um, it actually wasn't 15 percent of the internet's traffic it was 15 percent of the internet's routing network prefixes the essentially we we know generically sort of in an overview that the internet is made up of routers scattered far and wide that are interconnected to each other and that packets put onto the internet are then bounced from one router to another in each bounce taking them closer to their destination well the way that's done is that the routers contain multiple interfaces connect each interface connecting it to one other router they have multiple interfaces so they're each router is typically connected to many other routers and routing tables in the router when when a packet comes in the the destination ip address is examined and it's examined against this routing table which tells the, the router which is the best direction to send that packet towards its destination. So there's a protocol called BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, which is the, it's the protocol which routers use to communicate among themselves who has the best routing direction for given packets. Well, there's been some problems in the past. BGP uses the TCP protocol and some of the early routers had easy to guess sequence numbers 
in their TCP communications, which allowed TCP connections to be hijacked and spoofed and allowed bad guys to poison the routing tables of routers, causing traffic to get misrouted. Well, it also is the case that mistakes can be made. And it's most likely that that someone in China made a mistake and essentially published, because that's the term that's used, published the, a, the, the incorrect information that particular routers in China were the best place to send packets like for us.gov domains. And it turns out that many very sensitive domains were, for the period of about 15 minutes, were routed through China. And so the Internet, what happened was this information got published and as it as as happens with routers, they propagate and update each other. So this misinformation propagated through the routing infrastructure of the internet, causing all the routers everywhere to say, "Oh, uh, looking at their packets, it's like, oh, apparently China is where we want to send this," <laughs> and they did. When China routers got it, they thought. I mean, they saw the packet coming in and thought, wait a minute, uh, we don't know what to do with this. This needs to go over there. So they dutifully bounced it back out to wherever the packet was bound, many of them bound for sensitive domains in the U.S. And an analysis of this really makes it look like it was a mistake more than it was deliberate. But it certainly is an interesting um, warning to people that what can be done by mistake can also be done on purpose. And this is yet another reason why encryption is a good thing to have on all your communications because literally unencrypted traffic was all sent to China for a while before it got sent back where it should have gone, which, uh, you know, raises the hairs on our homeland security folks who watch these things. In other news, um, our friend Charlie Savage at the New York Times, who reported on the FBI's increasing interest in wiretapping, which raised the hair on my, on the back of my neck because of my interest in doing a highly secure encrypted VPN product that we've talked about. Um, CryptoLink is what it will be called. Um, he updated with an interesting story recently. Um, and I'm just going to quickly read this rather than trying to paraphrase it. He said he wrote that Robert S. Mueller III, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, traveled to Silicon Valley on Tuesday to meet with top executives of several technology firms about a proposal to make it easier to wiretap Internet users. Mr. Mueller and the FBI's general counsel, Valerie Caproni, were scheduled to meet with senior managers of several major companies, including Google and Facebook, according to several people familiar with the discussions. How Mr. Mueller's proposal was received was not clear. Quote, I can confirm that FBI Director Robert Mueller is visiting Facebook during his trip to Silicon Valley, 
said Andrew Noyes, Facebook's public policy manager. Michael Cortan, an FBI spokesman, acknowledged the meetings but did not elaborate. Mr. Mueller wants to expand a 1994 law, the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, C-A-L-E-A, to impose regulations on Internet companies. The law requires phone and broadband network access providers like Verizon and Comcast to make sure they can immediately comply when presented with a court wiretapping order. Law enforcement officials want the 1994 law to also cover Internet companies Mm. because people increasingly communicate online. An interagency task force of Obama administration officials is trying to develop legislation for the plan and submit it to Congress early next year. That would be early in 2011. The Commerce Department and State Department have questioned whether it would inhibit innovation as well as whether, in my case, it would. Yes. Yes, the answer is. As well as whether repressive regimes Mm. might harness the same wiretapping capabilities to identify political dissidents, according to officials familiar with the discussions. Some might say it turns our own regime into a repressive regime. Uh That would be a cynical point of view. (sighs) Under the proposal, firms would have to design systems to intercept and unscramble encrypted messages. Services based overseas would have to route communications through a server on United States soil where they could be wiretapped. A Google official declined to comment. Mr. Noyes said it would be premature for Facebook to take a position. So, as our listeners know, I will be watching this and reporting on this as we move forward. You know, Dvorak has always said that Facebook is um, a CIA front. And his, it's a very flimsy thing, but the CIA is a big investor in Facebook. Did you know the CIA has a venture fund? Okay, that's annoying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the CIA has a venture fund and is, in fact, a Facebook uh. investor. Now, if you, I mean, if you really want to be a conspiracy theorist, what better way to surveil people than Facebook? Because they voluntarily give you everything. In fact, I was listening to your live feed uh, while things were getting set up for us recording this show. And one of the news blurbs that Tom brought up, Tom and Becky mentioned, uh, indicated that insurance companies, life insurance companies, were now going to be increasingly using Facebook to check on publicly available information which people had posted about themselves in order to get information about them which would then be used in some fashion to further profile them for life insurance purposes and and health insurance purposes so that's really who's most interested i would guess it all gets kind of creepy yeah Yeah. you can you know i don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or if it's real but it's just something to be aware of yeah. yeah. So we've we know that 64-bit versions of Windows have been designed from scratch to be dramatically more secure uh, against malware of all kinds and specifically against rootkits. We've talked about how Microsoft has this dilemma that it is difficult for them to immediately secure 
32-bit versions of Windows um, because they, they can't impose the same level of security without breaking things. 64-bit Windows, thus until now, has been virtually immune to really nasty attacks like rootkits. Well, the Aluron rootkit, which has until now only been found on 32-bit Windows, is, has now successfully compromised 64-bit Windows. That was the rootkit, which we did discuss um, earlier this year, I think it was, when a version of Microsoft's updated software caused crashes on 32-bit windows. And when, it, you know, it was just re regular Windows update, wh which ran, and suddenly people couldn't boot their windows anymore. Well, that was caused by the fact that their machines had already been infected with a 32-bit version of this Aluron rootkit, which had infected their boot sector and and was assuming hard-coded entry points into Windows kernel. The update patch from Microsoft changed those hard-coded entry points, causing Windows to no longer boot to boot because the rootkit was crashing Windows whereas before that it had been carefully designed not to do so. So 64-bit Windows has specific, rigorous driver signing protection and kernel patch guard protection, all designed to make it bulletproof. The problem is, if something is running before Windows, and if it's cleverly designed... There's nothing Windows can do, literally nothing Windows can do to protect itself. And that is exactly what has happened here. We, we understand, I mean, the, the security people who have really looked at this understand this problem. That's why the trusted platform module, TPM, is called the trusted platform module. The idea behind TPM which is still not fully implemented. We, know, we have the hooks, we have the hardware, we have the technology, but it hasn't yet happened. The idea behind that is that from the first moment power is turned on, there is a verifiable, protected environment that step-by-step step cannot be compromised. It's because we don't yet have that that it is still possible for the boot sector of the hard drive to represent a point of compromise. And so it is this altered boot sector which gets control as the system boots before Windows does. The BIOS turns over control to the boot sector, which runs some code that is able to find the rest of the rootkit and on the fly... It patches the kernel protection to disable it, allowing an unsigned device driver to get into Windows, which then flips a switch, which is a development time switch used to bypass driver signing in 64-bit Windows. And you are then in your 64-bit, much more hostile to malware Windows is 
rooted. And it's happening today. So just FYI. <laughs> the good news is that, uh, you know, sorry, Microsoft sorry, I, did, <laughs> I was just running in the other room for a moment. That's Microsoft very scary. But didn't Microsoft say uh, that the 64-bit version of Windows was like um, uh, a preliminary to a fully secure version, but just kind of a, a warning shot across the bow of companies? Well, I mean, this is something they'll fix, presumably. They, they know about it. Their, their various security tools are aware of it. But essentially what it means is that this notion that 64-bit Windows is impervious. Right. I mean, it, it, it is as impervious as they were able to make it. The point was... Without breaking everything. No, no, no. That was the 32-bit problem. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, they were able to start fresh with 64-bit Windows, but, and they did say that patch guard is here, drivers right. must be signed, address space layout randomization is here. I mean, basically, they were able, because they were starting late in the game mm -hmm. on 64 bits, they were able to do everything they possibly could. And so while doing everything they possibly could, they've been rooted. And so that's significant. I do remember, though, there were workarounds for PatchGuard even when they first announced it. Um, well, the, the, I mean, and, and okay, so, so here's the problem is there will, this is software. There will always be workarounds. Right. I mean, yeah. there, there will, it, it's spy versus spy. Right. It's, right. you know, right. you're, you've got other software fighting against Windows. We're never going to have perfect security on an open platform where, where users can install software, which they download from anywhere on the internet. We're, we're just never going to have it. Yeah. Well, that's um, nice. Also in the news, uh, Google quickly fixed a little glitch in their uh, Google Apps scripting API. A 24-year-old uh, Armenian who was using the handle VAHE, V-A-H-E space G, created a demo on Google's own Blogspot uh, blogging platform. And actually, it probably had to be on Blogspot. Because visitors who went to his blog page who were sort of simultaneously logged on to Google's accounts who like, you know, so like if you were using a Gmail account or you, you were a Gmail user and you would like, you know, check the yes, keep me logged on so that, you know, you could go back and, and still be logged on. Um, his little demo used a mistake in Google's scripting API to obtain the email addresses of anyone who went to his blog page, despite the fact that they hadn't given it to him, and sent email to them from Google with fully valid Google headers. So this quickly came to Google's attention. They removed the page, and then they fixed what it, what, the little flaw that he had found. But a lot of it generated a lot of news in the security community because it was like, "Ooh, whoops! Wait a minute, my Gmail address has been leaking." I mean, essentially, he could have been harvesting them and using them for whatever purpose he wanted. So uh, that was fixed. And lastly, our old friend Form P H O R M, which we uh, gave a whole podcast to a couple of years ago. This was the very nasty technology which. Um, I think it was BT, British Telecom in the UK, was 
had was testing without its customer's knowledge, which was it, it used equipment installed at BT to in, on in real time intercept their customers' communications and install cookies, form cookies on every single domain in their browser that they went to in order to tag them and track them and and profile them deeply and pervasively. This is the so-called deep packet inspection. And we thought, we hopefully had thought we'd seen the last of this. The bad news is it's trying to make a comeback. The Wall Street Journal in their ongoing series, What They Know on Internet Spying, uh, had a story uh, titled Shunning shunned profiling technology on the verge of comeback and now form it's like a is, zombie it's I the know. undead it will not die now they're saying that they're going to opt in rather than opt out because you you could you could use an opt out cookie except you know that doesn't work cuz no one you know no one does that no one knows about it and apparently now you'll be able to opt in and users get get this leo can pay $10 a month not to be profiled and formed well that's not opt in that's opt out <sighs> yeah i don't understand if you have to pay not to be profiled yeah well the idea is you you opt into the, you opt into using it which saves you a ten dollar a month surcharge. Oh, I see. Uh, oh, oh, good. Oh, oh I don't get. I don't have to pay if I if I let you steal my stuff. That's exactly good, good deal. Exactly. Good deal. And you know, and they're they're looking at your searches. They're looking at at well, basically, it is ISP installed and sanctioned tracking because ISPs want a piece of the action. And the idea is, you'll remember how nasty this is. This is modifying web pages which you are downloading where the ISP is now inserting ads into web pages that were not delivered from the web server you're visiting. Well, and so, I'd be annoyed if I were that web page. Oh, if, oh exactly. my ads are getting replaced. So I guess I'm trying to think of how the spin would go. So the internet's your internet service provider, you'll get any, a message from them saying Great news. We have a new technology that will customize the ads you see, so you only see ads you're interested in. Now, if you don't want this, you can pay $10 not to get it. No, no, they won't do that. Oh, if you let us turn this on, we'll give you a $10 discount. Yes. That's how they'll do it. All right. Yes. Just a after raising your rates, $10. <laughs> right. Yeah, first they have to raise your rates. Is yeah. this only in the, the UK right now, or is this going to no, be? No, this is coming to an ISP near you, oh, apparently. Wait. Oh, nice. It is. Now, now, the good news is, once again, SSL blocks it. HTTPS, because, oh. you know, it, can't we, do it. It, cre it creates a secure tunnel from your machine to the server and there's nothing your ISP can do to spy on you as long as you haven't accepted a certificate from them. If that starts to happen... They can intercept. They're the man in yeah. the middle then. And we got a whole other can of worms. But that, I don't think nobody's going to know to do that. Comcast <sighs> wants you to uh, accept the certificate. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, that'll be really, that'll be the day. Now, so it's not illegal. I know there was an investigation going on when this first came around about a year ago. 
Well, what happened was they um, BT had done it without their users' knowledge or permission. It was being done behind their backs, and it caused a huge outcry. And, I mean, lawsuits uh, flew because people said, hey, you're spying on us. So, so the idea is this time it'll be done in an opt-out, in an opt-in fashion with end-user knowledge. And, you know, and there's statistics saying, oh, 60% of the people who we asked said they, you know, they would opt in if, it, if they didn't have to pay $10 a month more. It's like, uh, yeah, well, I guess so. So if you're on British Telecom... Well, I don't think this is BT again They're this not, time. They've learned. I mean, They've been burned. Huh? No, we're, we're still early on this. I, I will keep an eye on it and let our users know um, where this begins happening. But it, it was being done for a while in the U.S., and U.S. carriers dropped it quickly because they realized this was just going to cause them trouble. Mm, terrible. Um, I did want our iPad users to know that iOS 4.2.1 is now available for iPads, yeah. adding all those cool new features that the iPhone has had for many months. Including printing, which I've been playing with, and that's pretty pretty nice to be able to print. Yeah, for me, I was able to condense all of my many apps onto just two pages, rather down oh, from, I think, five huge. or six. Yeah, oh, my yeah, ten, so, yeah. Yeah, so being able to have folders and aggregate them uh, is really nice. And then I did have a fun... Uh, secure or security now a, a fun uh, spin right saved me story from a security now listener uh, and the subject was spin right saved me harry lindenfeld wrote steve let me start by saying i've been a fan of security now with you and leo since episode one up until this past week i've never had a need for spin right since i've listened to you and leo about backing up i work at a courthouse here and inherited the security card access server and system for the courthouse from the county. Their solution to backup was CDs on a CD writer. The database was over 500 people, and the number of CDs required was getting out of hand and no longer made sense. We had a computer crash about two years ago, and I gave the county the backup CDs at that point. They were unable to restore the database, saying that some of the CDs were corrupt. So we had to manually re-enter the complete database, which took days of painstaking work. I promised that would never happen again. So I purchased Norton Ghost and another hard drive and ran Ghost. Then I would do just weekly backups of the data files. Lo and behold, the main hard drive failed on the server and I rebooted the system off the ghosted hard drive and was up and running in minutes. Two days later, that hard drive started to have issues, and I had not purchased yet another hard drive to replace the, the dead one on the main system. And the county still wants to use CDs. Mm. I was in fear of losing everything, so I purchased Spinrite for myself because the county wouldn't buy it and immediately started it in level 2 mode. That was at 10 a.m., and it ran for just over four hours. By 3 p.m. that same day, I booted the system back up, and everything was back to normal. But here's the best part. The original hard drive that failed, it wouldn't boot up. After running Spinrite on it, it booted up normally and was faster than before. Spinrite to the rescue once again. 
I once again ghosted the main hard drive and also have a second ghosted hard drive off-site in a secure storage just in case. Thanks again, Steve, for all your hard work. You've saved me days, possibly weeks, of data recovery. P.S. Spinrite is now included in my bag of PC tools. Harry. As it should be. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about DNS spoofing and uh, how it, how, uh, well, we talked about how it worked in the past, but this is a uh, name, server, name server spoofability test that you've yes. got here. That should be very interesting. Is this a new app from you? Yes. You're just cranking them out these days. Yes. <laughs> hey, before we go on, though, I do want to mention our friends at Ford and, of course, the great Ford Sync and a new contest that Ford's putting on, and I will tell you about all of this. First, let me just mention the great Ford Sync because that's – I live – you know, for Ford Sync, it's in my Mustang, and you know, I love it. I get in the car, it starts playing my book. I'm listening to the new Steve Martin book, and uh, and I just love it because I get in, it starts playing. I get out, it stops playing. It always picks up where I left off, and that's because it works so well with my phone. Now I'm using it with an Android phone, but iPhone, Android, even Windows Phone, the new Windows Phone, all works great with Ford Sync. The idea is you keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, and yet you are connected to the world. It reads you text messages as they come in. You can play songs. You can say, "Call Steve Gibson." All of that without taking your hands off the wheel. I'd I love that. Of course, built-in turn-by-turn directions as well. 911 alerts for safety. Now, there's a new program from Ford I want you to check out. It's called the 2012 Ford Focus Global Test Drive. And the, the URL, actually, we made a shortened URL. It'll take you to the Facebook page for this. It's twitfordfocus.com. Twitfordfocus.com. And then all you have to do is press the like button, and uh, you'll be you'll be part of this contest here's now through the end of the year through december 31st you submit a video to participate if you are selected ford will donate ten thousand dollars to the charitable cause of your choice and send you and a friend on a free trip to a secret location in europe to test drive the all-new 2012 focus now i haven't test drived it but i've looked at it and this is a fantastic this is this is this is they're just ford's going crazy over this one it's a beautiful car so go to twitfordfocus.com, make a short video. This is what's in the video, up to two minutes in length. What charitable cause you would give this money to and why? And then upload your video to the 2012 Ford Focus Global Test Drive through the end of the year. Twitfordfocus.com. And it's all explained there. You submit the video uh, through Facebook. And people will be rating your video, Okay. So you're going to create a video no longer than two minutes explaining why you want to be the, one of the first to test drive the Ford Focus and how you'd start something more for a good cause with the local equivalent of $10,000 U.S. Open worldwide, although you get more out of it if you don't live in Europe. <laughs> you get a free trip to Europe. Uh, if you've not seen the new Ford Focus, you will soon. I saw it at Blog World and I just was blown away. Blown away. Just Fantastic. TwitFordFocus.com. Let's bring that page down. Everybody, go on over there. All right, Steve, uh, I think we are ready to talk a little bit about spoofability. Do you want to recap a little bit the story behind all this? Oh, of course. Um, so, so here's the problem. When a user types a domain name into their machine, uh, in, into their client, um, their computer, um, it needs, as we know, to look up the IP address of that domain if it isn't already known to the computer. 
So the computer sends a DNS query to the DNS servers that it's registered to use. They, those servers either themselves then go about looking up the answer or in many cases hand that off to like a master big iron uh, ISP server that does the work. But one way or another, some server gets the job of looking up the IP address. So DNS was designed many years ago at the beginning of the Internet when, as we've often said, security wasn't even on the map. It wasn't even a consideration, literally. I mean, it's hard to imagine that now, but it was absolutely the case that security wasn't even a consideration. Remember that Netscape introduced SSL on you know, their later browsers. There was no way to even ha- like exchange information securely with a web browser. Truly, security wasn't considered in the beginning. So a DNS query has a, a 16-bit query ID, which was used by the server to identify the responses. That is to say, it would, it would have a counter which would increment the 16-bit value and it would send a query off to another DNS server asking it if it knew the IP address for this domain. And when the response came back, it would use this 16-bit query ID to verify that it was the proper response to sort of, you know, segregate all of the outstanding queries with the, the, with the returning replies. What bad guys figured out was that if the queries were always being sent out from the same port, and if the ID was just being incremented linearly as they were originally, then it would be possible to, to spoof the reply coming back from a, a remote server. So the D, so the the DNS server that's asking the question would would generate its query. But because the query was predictable, because the port it was coming from was predictable and the ID was predictable, it would be possible to to beat the remote DNS server's reply with a spoofed one. So what that would do is it would be it would be accepted because it would be what the what the querying DNS server was expecting. It would be accepted as the truth, and that would poison the cache, poison the the cache memory, the DNS memory of that DNS server with the wrong IP. So literally, if if I mean the way this would happen is a user could could be going to Amazon.com. And and the DNS server would have the wrong IP deliberately, maliciously have the wrong IP for Amazon.com. It just it wouldn't be but wouldn't be correct. That would then take their browser to some malicious site masquerading as Amazon.com, and and the the site could do whatever it wanted. So. DNS spoofing is a very potent and powerful attack 
which which the industry needs to prevent. So what Kaminsky suggested was, first of all, that the query IDs not be linear, that they be generated in, in, a, in a pattern which is, is extremely random, and the same thing for the port. The, the ports that the queries come from can be, can be any of almost 65,536. 65,536 is, is 2 to the power of 16, the number of combinations of 16 bits. And the query ID can be the same thing. It's 16 bits. So together, that makes up a 32-bit um, source of randomness as long as the DNS server is randomly choosing ports to issue its query and query IDs, both of those at random, then, then there's no way for an attacker to be able to predict a given query's port and ID and it dramatically, I mean, all, to the point of it no longer being practical, dramatically lowers the spoofability of that particular DNS server. So what I decided at that time, um, the summer of 2008, was that it, it made it was a it was a perfect free service for GRC to offer, much as we've always offered uh, the Shields Up uh, test your ports, you know, port probing facility, which also was something that inherently had to be done from the outside in toward the user, because that's of course the way tax came at people. Similarly, um, G- what I realized was I could I could have GRC pretend to be a name server and and ah. and have the u yes and have the user's DNS server ask GRC for an IP and I would then analyze the port and the query ID of the queries coming from the user server. Very clever. So, well, it gets, it gets way better. Well, let's, so, well, let's take a little break. Okay. And then we'll get way better. <laughs> I'll tell you, the spoofing really scared me. I thought it was fixed. So I'm, I'm curious to see how widespread this is. And I think you probably have some numbers based on that. Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, before we talk about that, as long as we're talking about security, let's talk about securing your business, your enterprise with the Astaro Security Gateway. The ultimate unified threat management system, a UTM. I'll tell you, Astaro is fantastic. We have an Astaro one here. There are quite a few different models depending on the size of your enterprise. And one of the things I like about Astaro is as you grow, Astaro grows. You can uh, daisy chain Astaros. I think uh, up to, uh, let me see, I think it's 10. Yeah, 10 gateways, which should pretty much take care of any size enterprise using their, they call it active-active clustering. Without additional load balancing, they just they just handle it. What does the UTM do? What does the Astaro Security Gateway do? What doesn't it do? Of course, it's the it's you know standards uh, standard state of the art firewall, all the stuff that you'd expect, stateful packet inspection, all of that intrusion protection as well. Um, but then it adds a lot of kind of useful features that uh, as long as you're going to put a box like this in place, uh, can really make your life easier. For instance. A remote access, complete VPN uh, capabilities via SSL, which makes it very much easier to uh, implement. 
Uh, you don't need a whole bunch of you know software on the client systems and so forth. Um, and it and and by the way, it uses it's the best uh, best of breed of of open source and uh, commercial software to do this. So it uses all the standards you would expect uh, for the VPN. It's the IP. Let's see, I have a list here, so I can read it right. Uh, VPN through enhancement of existing remote access protocols like IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, and PPTP tunneling with SSL VPN. It also, uh, I mean, that's really nice. If you want to implement a VPN, this is the way to do it. It also uh, supports um, open um, PGP and SMIME standards for encryption and signing of email. So, and that can be completely transparent to your users. So the the the, the Astaro will validate the uh, source of the mail, uh, encrypt and decrypt on the fly as the mail's going out and coming in. Uh, even virus scanning. There's, I think, there's three scanners. There's two for email and one for the web. So you're absolutely, absolutely protected. Of course, complete content filtering too. Um, you get uh, um, instant messaging, peer-to-peer -peer control. You know, you you control what's happening. You control what's coming into your network. You are protected. You are safe, and it is just very effective. You can try it right now for free. A demo in your um, business by calling if if you're in the U.S. toll free eight seven seven the number four A S T A R O. Of course, Astaro is global. And uh, if you're outside the U.S., visit the website, astaro.com, to arrange a demo unit. And if you're a non-commercial user, I'll throw this in. Go to astaro.com slash security now. You can download the software. There's also a VMware appliance. You can try it out and see for yourself how great Astaro is. I really like what they've done. They've bundled in the Astaro update. They used to charge for that, a yearly uh, 79 euros. That's free even for non-commercial users. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com or call 877, the number four, Astaro. <clears throat> Maybe you don't need it right now. Just keep it in the back of your mind. When the time comes that you need this kind of protection, you better believe we're putting this in the new studio. Astaro dot com slash security now or call 877, the number four, Astaro. Is that the kind, I'm, I just wonder, Steve, I, I, would, is that the kind of thing that would protect you? I guess not from something like this. No, yeah. it would, wouldn't deal with this. Um uh it would certainly be it would certainly be useful for um for users um you know who are worrying about fire sheep and open oh, yeah. uh, open oh, wi-fi yeah. okay. because they would use oh, yeah. a um a, a vpn to connect to their home and then their internet traffic would leave their home out back out onto the internet so they really so the only way to protect against dns spoofing is to know if the dns server you're using has that vulnerability correct Correct. So, so what? Uh, what the first question I had to ask myself was: Okay, I need a bunch of queries from the user's DNS servers. How do I generate those? How do I get? Because you know, if, if I give it a domain, it's you know, like that I have control of that it's never seen before. It won't be in its cache, so it'll have to ask for the IP. So I thought, okay, but I don't want just one. I need inherently to do a good statistical analysis. I need hundreds, if not thousands, of queries in a very rapid order. So I came up with a really cool solution. When you you simply you go to to, to grc.com/dns and that will bounce you to the the spoofability test page. There's a button at the bottom. The button is basically just takes you to 
another page. In order to display that page, which is the testing page, the, the, the web server tries to display, tells your browser to display the image for a really funky named little tiny GIF image. It's 13 random characters. Actually, they're pseudo-random and they never occur twice because they're, they're based on a 64-bit counter back at GRC. So that way we know that, that, that the domain name that begins with those 13 characters has never occurred before. Then, it, then it's dot .grc, or I'm sorry, then it's dot .dns dot .grc .com. So that's, the, that, that's sort of a pseudo-domain where this GIF image on the page that we're trying to display is located. So that, of course, the, the, the page comes to your browser, and your browser says, oh, I need to display this GIF image in order to show the user this page. So it says, wow, look at that domain. I never saw that before. 13 random characters, .dns.grc.com. So the your computer asks your DNS server to get the IP of that domain where that GIF image is going to be served from. Your DNS server says, hmm, uh, funky looking 13 characters dot dns dot dns dot grc dot com. Well, so it's never seen the, the dns dot grc dot com in the same way that, for example, www dot grc dot com is a is a subdomain of grc dot com. dns dot grc dot com is a different subdomain. So it asks grc's name servers. Um, for the IP address of dns.grc.com, and it gets a special IP for a pseudo name server that I wrote. It says, okay, now I've got the IP of dns.grc.com. What's the IP of this funky 13 characters.dns.grc.com? That is a subdomain of that subdomain. Well, there's a record, there, there's a type of reply in DNS called a CNAME, a canonical name. The idea being that, that if you ask for a domain name, that could be an alias for something else. So when, when you ask the grc.com pseudo DNS server for this funky 13 characters dot dns.grc.com IP, that this pseudo DNS server that I wrote returns an ungodly alias. That is the actual canonical name. It is it is a dot 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 eight forty three a dot subdomains then that same 13 characters dot dns dot grc dot com. So think about that, Leo. It's it's like it's as if you had a 43 deep hierarchy of domain names. And what this forces is this forces 
individual DNS queries to 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 enumerate each of the IP name servers for that entire hierarchy of sort of fake DNS. So so your your the the user's DNS server receives this this canonical name which is incredible. I mean it's never seen anything like it before, but it's valid and it says, "Oh my goodness. Uh okay, let's see. Uh I need to get the name server for the a.13 characters.dns.grc.com then and it asks that name server for the a.a and then it asks that name server for the a.a.a and it asks that and so forth basically exploring all the way out to the end of this insanely long deep domain name where I, I used a.a.a because it was, you know, that's a single character, which is this, the fewest you can have between dots. And so what this does is this forces a flurry of queries in very short order between the user's DNS server and my pseudo server, which is the name server for all of those subdomains down that path, allowing me to collect in a database for this user, for that particular the query name server, all of the ports that the queries come from and all of the IDs that the queries have. And so on the fly, I build, a, I build databases for all the DNS servers heard from. This is also deliberately slowed a little bit. Because, I mean, we're doing a lot of work here with this going back and forth, but we also don't want to respond too quickly. Because one of the other things that happens is, because I want to discover all the name servers that might be brought to bear, not just the particular name server this time, but I want to, I want to do a comprehensive discovery of name servers. So the system also throttles its replies so that at least some number of seconds, typically five seconds, will be required for this entire resolution process. What happens is the client that asked the question of its DNS server gets impatient. After a second, it asks it again, thinking that maybe its query got dropped. And then if it still doesn't hear back after another second, it says, well, maybe that... DNS servers died. So that's where the where the secondary name server or more name servers, because some users, you know, there's no limit to how many, no practical limit to how many name servers you can configure on your computer. So what what Windows and Mac and Unix and you know um, normal protocol obeying um, clients do is if they haven't heard back after two queries a second apart, they then ask all the name servers that, they're, that are registered for them to use the same question. So suddenly, more name servers are being asked for this domain. They start querying GRC. I collect all of this stuff together because 
this this 13 characters is changing every time i track which ones are associated with which users trying to run the spoofability test to aggregate all the data and and essentially that that approach allows me to discover all the name servers which might generate public queries out on the internet for a given user based on their current DNS configuration, and I collect this rich database of associated query IDs and query ports, each being 16 bits, and, and assemble that into a report. So the, the, the processing done, once this has all happened, oh, and, and, and this actually happens multiple times. What we discovered during the testing of this is that the longer you waited, the more name servers you found. So this, this test continues. It shows you little progress dots as you're performing the test um, as, as it moves along. So you can see what's going on. Shows you how many name servers have, have been discovered so far. Accumulates all this data. And then graphs them in, in paired scatter charts. I dis, I dis, I display the results visually because good as software can be, nothing is better than the human eye for, for picking out patterns. And so you can instantly see whether this just looks like, a, I mean, true scattered queries with no pattern or whether there are any kinds of like zones of queries or vertical or horizontal or diagonal lines you know, the, it turns out that we're very good at seeing these results. And in fact, a ways down the page, where we're lower down, I'm explaining all of this. I, I, I give a, a link to a gallery of sample DNS name server scatter charts that are really bad, which our users, which users during testing of this, found their own DNS servers were producing. And, I mean, it's a source for some worry. And then in, in addition to that, in addition to these scatter charts, since there are anomalies that the human eye might not see, for example, say that the query IDs were always um, odd. Well, you couldn't see that in a scatter chart, but you could notice, that is, software could notice, that the least significant bit of the query ID was always zero, meaning that it would be an uh, wait, no, it was always one, meaning that it would be an odd number. So I then also create some charts showing the bit predictability of each of the 16 bits of the of the query ID and the source port and indicate if they don't look if the predictability is not near zero, then some some person, could profile the server just as I have, a, a, a malicious attacker could profile the server as I have and notice that there are bits that are stuck in some cases or highly predictable. And then what that does is that lowers the effective entropy, the effective randomness of these queries, making it making that server more spoofable. Um, then additionally, I... I um, I, I do some statistical analysis to determine the maximum entropy, the lost entropy, a bias in the direction of the bits, and basically fully characterize and profile 
the name servers which which are producing public DNS queries on behalf of the user out onto the internet and summarize it and and actually just tell you flat out if your anti-spoofing safety is very good, good, moderate, not so good, uh, and and so forth down the scale. And then the the balance of the page explains everything that happened above, and uh, uh, it turned out very nice. Yeah, I have to say, I'm looking at the scatter charts. Uh, if you if you go to grc.com/dns, you can read all about this. There's all the details and so forth. And then there's just a little button at the bottom that says initiate test. Now, one glitch happened as we were developing this, Leo. Yes. We we crashed some people's huh. routers. Oh. Uh, and you uh, told me that before I pushed the button. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> we crashed some people's routers. And... People were like, wait a minute, you know, I tried to run your test, Steve. This was during, you know, in, in uh, organized in our news groups during the development of this. And it was like, okay, wait a minute. Um, you know, I wasn't getting myself crashed. Other people's weren't. I was only issuing valid DNS queries. Um, it turns out that some firmware in some routers is buggy. Ah, well, and in fact, you'd probably want to know that, right? Exactly. Because what we know... By the way, I'm many... killing your Skype right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Does this send a lot of traffic? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Just keep talking. It's okay. I probably should stop the... Uh, it's no, fa- because I, I'll, I'll, be, I'll love to see what you, uh, what you see in terms of your own results. Yeah. Well, now you got me going. And I, I, now I'm not sure which... I don't know whose uh, system we're using right now. If it's if it's we have so many different ISPs in the in the cottage. You have little dots. You're looking at little black dots. Little dots across. are going across. Yeah, we've got three query rounds so far. Found four and, servers in the first round. Six hundred forty nine queries received. No servers in the second or third round. Okay, good. So it we it looks like you found them all the fir- in the first round. Yep. What I do is I keep doing additional rounds. Because sometimes there are reluctant DNS servers that kind of like finally appear. So we get four rounds of zeros. And then I've decided without, without finding any new DNS servers, and I decide that we found them all. I suspect I'm open DNS on this one. which And, of course, they patched bind right away. In fact, I don't think they were ever vulnerable. Um, you're right. I think that they were, they were always very safe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I we don't have time for me to go through all of this. <laughs> okay. But I'll keep it. Did, did, oh, wait a minute. It's done. Oh, it's done. Well, that was fast. As soon as I said we don't have time, it finished. Okay. Yep. 809 queries from server at, oh, I guess we're not. 6887-76180. That's not DN, open DNS. Anti-spoofing safety, good. It is Comcast's server. Okay. And the distribution uh, looks completely random. All over the place. So, uh, query source port analysis looks excellent. Transaction ID analysis, excellent. This, this, so, I don't know how, I have no idea what any of this means, but it looks okay, pretty but good. Scroll down, but, but that's only one server. Scroll yeah. down. Oh, my God. Look at, and here's another one. This is uh, two of those were in the San Francisco. Uh, that was San Jose, San Francisco, uh, Utah, Salt Lake City. This is all Comcast and Salt Lake City. And they all uh, they all look good. That's very good. Well, so yeah. So what this did was this found DNS servers all over the place that 
that have the ability to serve your DNS queries right. because because this page was you know was crafted to generate a huge number of DNS uh, queries and then um, and then at, and then analyze the results. The only reason so, I think I got good instead of excellent is lost entropy. There was a little lost entropy on all of them. Ah, uh, okay. I don't know what that means. Um, it would be a function of like the maybe the source the source the bit predictability on either side or not like really down near zero. Mm -hmm. It's pretty low, 0 0.18, 0 0.2, 0 0.24. It's pretty low, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think you have anything to worry about. Obviously, yeah. So, so what it's funny though. Was, it's just not binary. That it's not like oh, it's okay or it's not okay. Well, yeah, because I mean, it, it, because it's it it isn't. In fact, you you could have, for example, some servers. I'm. It happens that I when I when I brought this page up for myself, I didn't have any source ports below. Eh, it looks like maybe below maybe four thousand. So it was only from four thousand up to six five five three six, which is that's still a large range. But it means that no of the source ports were from from port one up to 4,000, which, which eliminates a, a huge clump of possibilities, meaning that an attacker wouldn't bother guessing any of those. So it really is a variable thing. It's not just go or no go. It's, it's, it you know, really is how, how variable is it. And in fact, Leo, now that you've got a page there, you scroll down to the uh, the bit predictability chart description, right above it, you'll see the gallery of sample DNS name server scatter charts. If you click that, it'll give you an idea of what some some users who are listening to this podcast will see. Because even now, DNS servers have not been fixed because there's been no pressure right. put on them to get these things fixed. So my hope is, one of the reasons I did this was this would give end users a tool to say to their ISPs, hey, you, I'm using spoofable DNS servers. Fix these. And when you see, so if it's, if it's a, just looking at the scatter chart tells you right away, if it's totally random looking, that's good. But the less random, the, the worse it is. Yes. So, sometimes you'll see diagonal lines, meaning that there's <laughs> count, there are counters running instead oh. of something being pseudo-random. So this is how that, that whole spoofing occurred because it wasn't a random assignment. Yep. So the more random, I mean, if it looks random, it, it probably is. And if you see any patterns there, that's that's not good. Right. Look at that and diagonal anyways, line. That's wild. Yeah, and that it yeah. just just had, that just had a simple counter, just like Jeez, do terrible. it. That, that's it. Couldn't be any worse. Terrible. Well, it, it could be a straight line, which 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 would mean it was always the same thing. That would be worse. <laughs> so that's pretty predictable. <laughs> but on the issue of uh, on the issue of router crashing, as we know. Exploits start out as things that cause crashes, right. and then the bad guys analyze right. the crash and figure out a way to execute code instead. So if it crashes so, your router, that's not good. Yes. What we've discovered is, Obviously. is that it is possible to crash cons some consumer routers by returning to them a DNS query that is Mal that what is legal, but the router doesn't like. So what happened was we we found two different sources of trouble. One was the length of the query, which is why I trimmed it to forty three, so as not to crash people's routers. 
And also, when we finally gave the the answer to the final question, when they went all the way out, the A dot A dot A dot A dot A, all the way out to the end, if I gave them the final IP, that would crash people's routers. So the normal test, the spoofability test, deliberately doesn't crash anyone's router, but I created a second test called, not surprisingly, the router crash test. And the router crash test is also there at the same location. Um, you can find a link to it at the bottom of, of all of the DNS spoofability pages called router crash test. When you, when you click that, what it does is it issues the most aggressive, still legal, but most aggressive queries, only a few of them, and a huge number of Belkin routers just go belly up immediately. It just they just die. Oh, that's good. And and a, num- a number of others. In fact, what what we have is uh, there's a feedback page for for people to let me know if their router does or does not crash and is or is not listed among those that do. And so we I'm maintaining on this on on the site on this page a list of all the routers by model number and firmware version which are known to be crashable by this router crash test. And again, my hope is that this will put pressure on the router vendors to fix their firmware because nobody wants a router that, that that my website is able to crash because if I can crash it and I'm doing so non-maliciously, somebody else could crash it maliciously and they may be able to do more than crash it. We don't know, but they may be able to execute code, which would be an external code execution on your router from the Internet, and that's about as bad as it gets. Wow, very interesting. GRC.com slash DNS, that's where to go to do this. I've stopped now, so I'll stop screwing up your Skype. <laughs> Uh, great stuff, as as usual. If you want to uh, know more about this stuff, uh, grc.com slash DNS in great detail on how it works and, uh, uh, very, and also how the spoofing uh, attack works. Um, if you want uh, 16 kilobit versions of the show, you can get them at the same spot. Of course, full transcriptions are available too. Steve pays for those. Thank you, Steve. At grc.com. While you're there, buy yourself a copy of the fabulous Spinrite. Everybody ought to have a copy. If you got a hard drive, you need Spinrite. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week. Have a great Thanksgiving, Steve. Thanks, Leo. We'll do a Q&A. Talk about uh, maybe the benchmark and the spoofability test. And, uh, follow up any questions that our users have. And we'll go from there. Good. Uh, just if you have a question, grc.com slash feedback is a place to go. We'll see you next time, Steve. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank, Thank you, Leo.